We're fond of a bit of Indiana Jones here at the cabin. We do like old-fashioned two-fisted tales of adventuring around the globe, and we really like anything that involves punching Nazis. But perhaps most of all, we like stories that involve a hunt for mysteries from the past. And as much as George Lucas's whip-wielding archaeologist is a throwback to the kind of adventure serial shows that Lucas enjoyed as a youth, Raiders of the Lost Ark and its sequels in fact traffic in a much older vein of mystical thinking. Almost from its beginnings as a hobby for antiquarian enthusiasts and through the early days of becoming a more formalised science, archaeology has been shrouded in mystery and adventure. As the age of high colonialism filled out all the blank spots on the map, the human need for wonder began to place lost cities and civilizations no longer at the edges of known civilization, but back into the foggy recesses of prehistoric antiquity. Many bizarre and almost unbelievable stories of archaeological mystery came out of this era. In 1899, a group representing the so-called British Israelite movement descended upon the ancient ceremonial burial site at the Hill of Tara in County Meath, Ireland. This band of eccentric pseudo-archaeologists believed that the Anglo-Saxon British were the true descendants of the ten lost tribes of Israel and that the fabled Ark of the Covenant was hidden beneath this ancient Irish site. But they came up against some of the biggest names of the Irish Celtic revival movement, then in full swing, to whom the Hill of Tara was also of extreme symbolic significance, for it is mentioned in the famous Book of Invasions as being the seat of the ancient High Kings of Ireland. You are listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean. And as usual, here at the cabin in the woods in Wild West Cork, I'm about to delve into a story of strange happenings and strange beliefs from the past, attempting to maintain a critical but not cynical take on the situation. Which does prove difficult sometimes, especially when it comes to anti-Semitic pro-colonialist movements. But we'll see what we can do. It's a grey evening at the cabin. There is a soft breeze with just a hint of autumn in it, and the trees are gently swaying. Somewhere in the distance I can hear an electric saw. Perhaps the local forestry body are up to some work this evening. Hopefully that won't show up on the recording, but if you do hear a little buzz, that's what it is. The walls of the cabin are decked with archaeological prints of far-off sites. The candles are lit, and as usual, I've got a fine beverage by my side. For this episode, I'll be enjoying a red ale from the Brew Brewery, located appropriately enough up in County Meath. It's a biscuity, malty red ale, just the thing to ease me into a late summer evening and a tale of old-school archaeological madness. Grab yourself a beverage, pack your shovel, and get ready for this episode, British Israelites, the Ark of the Covenant in Ireland. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Okay, everyone, welcome to the show. Hopefully, you've got yourself something nice to drink, somewhere comfortable to sit, and we'll get stuck right into it. So, I have a few shout outs and notes, as I often do. So, first off, a huge thanks to the 
super duperstitious podcast for giving us a lovely mention and playing our promo recently. Thanks very much, fellas. That really helps out. It's lovely to make contacts and connections with other shows. Uh, they are also scientists and uh, biologists and zoologists like myself. So I think it adds an extra, I like to think it adds an extra weight to any episodes we do that are about sort of physical zoological monsters or creatures like that. So we have a little something in common there. Also, a wonderful, wonderful thanks to Mr. Alex Secker over at the My Kind of Movie podcast, who was good enough to have me on as a guest recently. So um, Alex's show is about having guests on who discuss three movies that are of personal significance to them. So I had a great time talking to him. I won't spoil all of the films, but we did talk about Jurassic Park, which was of fundamental importance to me as a youngster. It was one of the reasons I decided to go into science and into biology in particular so we had a great chat we got really it was very positive like watching Jurassic Park is like getting an old warm hug off an old friend and getting to talk to somebody who is as enthusiastic about the film as I was and um, was was fantastic Alex says on the show that you know you forget how good it is you 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 know we always know it is one of these classics but until you go back and rewatch it and appreciate really what was achieved with that film you kind of you kind of take it for granted so I won't spoil the other two films they're a little bit more unusual a little bit more niche but I'll put a link to the show once it comes out and I I'm very proud of it we had a great time recording so huge thanks Alex also coming out this week which is exciting the night monitor who is an artist um, making sort of electronic music based on or inspired by unexplained phenomena which which sounds nuts, but let, go and check it out. Listen to it. it. It's absolutely brilliant. So The Night Monitor, I was enjoying their album that came out recently called This House is Haunted, and that was about the 1977 Enfield Poltergeist case. They've just put out a new record, and it's called Spaceman Mystery of the Terror Triangle, and this one is based on the also 1970s Welsh Triangle UFO case, which is really interesting. If anyone's ever read the Neil Spring book, oh goodness, what was it called? The Visitors, something like that. I'll put it in the show notes if I if I remember. But it's about the Welsh Triangle. It's a fictional version of the Welsh Triangle. He's the guy who wrote The Ghost Hunters, which was based on the Borley Rectory case, which I, I really enjoyed. Anyway, Night Monitor, Spaceman Mystery of the Terror Triangle. Do check it out. If you don't if you can't imagine what electronic music or or atmospheric or lands like soundscape music would sound like based on UFO stories and unexplained phenomena, go check it out. You will you will understand immediately. It's really good fun. Okay, from fun things to something a little bit less fun, my final note before we get stuck into the episode is about QAnon. I don't usually spend too much time talking about QAnon because it's a fairly serious topic. It's becoming more and more of a thing and more and more of an issue. And I I feel like talking about... The, I could talk about it every day. There's so much going on. It would change the tone of the podcast. It's... It's a little dark and it's a little sinister and it's a little worrying. So in general, I prefer to keep things a bit lighter. Um, there's a few things happening with QAnon at the moment, which make me increasingly feel that I would be negligent in hosting a show that deals with strange beliefs if I don't uh, tackle this subject at least once. So I'm toying with the idea of having my brother Donald on to talk about this, being as he is the resident sort of political scientist of the show. 
And that, yeah, that's something I'm thinking about. I might just do it once and make our position clear about it. Perhaps all my listeners are up to date on this stuff already and they don't need to know, but I'm toying with the idea of, yeah, having done a lot and doing a primer, just a sort of a basic, where did it come from? What's dangerous about it? Why should you care? So that's something. And um, if you have thoughts either way, and let me know. I'd love to know whether you think this is something we ought to spend time on. Reach out to us on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, or on Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So yeah, it's in my metrics tell me a decent proportion of our listeners are in the US. Uh, you should probably know that as of next year, you are going to have large amounts of people in your Congress who are believers in what QAnon is about. And you should know what it is. If you don't, do look it up. It's very strange, very serious, and it is growing. So that's all I'm going to say for now. We may do a one-off episode on it, but we'll see how I feel about that. Okay, today we are talking about the British Israelites, we are talking about the Hill of Tara in Ireland, and we are talking about the Ark of the Covenant. So, who were the British Israelites? The basics are that this was a movement that really started in the 19th century. This is a group of religious Christian folks from the UK who came to believe that primarily Anglo-Saxons were descended from the last ten tribes of Israel. So, yeah, this is this is proper weird archaeology territory. And um, not just Anglo-Saxons, in fairness, some groups of them also included the Celts in there. I feel like it's a little half-hearted. Uh, I feel like they probably would have excluded the Celts if they could have, except it was pretty much impossible to deny the fact that the Celts lived in the British Isles um, for a very long time. And I don't think they could easily have left that out of the story. So... The idea was that, yeah, the, the, the primarily the British people have direct connection to the Israel that's this described in the Old Testament. This is largely originally a religious movement, but it very quickly takes on colonialist elements as well. So one of the primary people in, involved in the creation of this was a fellow by the name of Richard Brothers. In 1822, he writes a book called the, the correct account of the invasion of England by the Saxons, showing the English nation to be descendants of the last ten tribes. This is an early in, in, in version of the story, but um, as we'll find out, really the movement takes off later in the 19th century. So I'm going to read from an article called British Israelism by a fellow by the name of Jay Wilson. This is from 1968. And it is from the University of East Anglia. So Jay Wilson, writing in the 1960s, just gives us a quick overview of this group of people. He says, oh, and by the way, they still exist. So he, he's writing in the present tense. British Israelites believe that the Anglo-Saxons are descended from the last ten tribes of Israel and will inherit their blessings in the last days. This belief leads them to conclude that the white race is inherently superior that Britain and the Commonwealth, in partnership with the United States, must lead the world by divine appointment, and that Britain, as a latter-day Israel, measures her national well-being according to the extent to which she allows Protestant fundamentalist principles to influence her economics and political thinking. Right, so straight away we're, we're up to our neck in, in colonialism and 
racist policies and fundamental religious ideas. He then gives us a quick overview of how this kind of took off. He says, Although scattered British-Israel societies are known to have existed as early as 1872, there was at first no real move to develop an organisation beyond the small groups of believers which had arisen spontaneously. The beginnings of the movement as an identifiable religious force can, therefore, be more accurately placed in the 1880s, when the circumstances of the time were particularly propitious for the appearance of a movement so imperialistically orientated. The reason why the ancient belief in Britain's divine destiny and mission should have found its most vigorous expression in the final quarter of the 19th century can probably be found in the pattern of association unique to that time. Religious fundamentalism was widespread amongst the middle classes and racial theories abounded. So yeah, this is, for me, this is Wilson placing this movement in its cultural context. He's saying, look, it's no accident that this thing reaches its height at the same time as the, the high imperialist era. This is when the British Empire is at its height. And like all world powers, they were absolutely desperate to justify their sort of dominion of the world. You know, not just by military force, but also by some sort of... It's not just might is right. There's got to be a sort of a spiritual or a theological underpinning to it. So this was not what I would call mainstream within like any of the British Protestant sort of uh, society. But there are people writing at this time who are concerned that it might become so. And it does have some very high profile um, proponents and it does get a certain amount of sw sway and leeway from the from the British government and consequently um, what Irish government there was at the time so to speak. So I um, will quickly say like one main source for most of my information on this story is a book called Tara and the Ark of the Covenant. It's by Maureen Keru and Ashling Flood and that's from 2003. So that's kind of my basic overview for this story what's about to happen but I will mention other sources as I go. So, like, what, what are the details of these British Israelites? What, what do they believe? Like I said, they are still around, but though they're quite small now. Their, their heyday was definitely the turn of the 20th century. So, here's a book. This is an anti-British imperialism book from 1915, written by a fellow called David Barron, and it's called From the, Hi the, the History of the Ten Lost Tribes. Now, at the beginning of his book, he himself quotes, I think, the Jewish Encyclopedia. Yep. Let me just double check that one. Yeah, so this is an article within that book called Anglo-Israelism in the Jewish Encyclopedia. And this kind of, it's, it's using some antiquated language, so I'm going to do my best to parse this a little bit. But, okay, if you're, how can they possibly have, you know, used history and religion to justify this crazy notion that like of all people the British Anglo-Saxons are descendants literally of the ten tribes of Israel well here's what they say the supposed historical connection of the ancestors of the English with the lost ten tribes is deduced as follows the ten tribes were transferred to Assyria about 720 BC and simultaneously according to Herodotus the Scythians, including the tribe of the Sasse or Saxe, and here you can you can you can see the beginnings of the sort of fake etymologies happening, where they're they're taking the names of these ancient groups of people and being oh that sounds a bit like Saxon, doesn't it? Um, 
appeared in the same district. The progenitors of the Saxons afterwards passed over into Denmark, the quote mark or country of the tribe of Dan, and thence to England. Another branch of the tribe of Dan, which remained in ships, made its appearance in Ireland under the title of Tua de Danon. Nice, I see what you're doing there, guys. So we have mentioned the Tua de Danon before. Uh, for more information on that one, check out our episode Voices in the Woods, where we got to talking about sort of legends of North American and Irish little people. But just to be very brief, the Tua de Danon are a sort of a mythological ancient race in Irish folklore and mythology they were in, in some versions of the story they were the old pagan gods of ireland who were then sort of sent into exile under the ground uh, when christianity came into the country and uh, some of the stories involving the the you know the dina Sheha, the little people are thought to be an interpretation of memories of the two of and that's a a short and, and dirty explanation my my sincere apologies to any actual folklorist listening let's continue with this bogus history so tefi tefi a descendant of the royal house of david so making that link back to the ancient israeli kingdoms all from the old testament arrived in ireland according to the native legend in 580 bc from her was descended fergus moore king of argyle an ancestor of queen victoria Wow, folks, this is absolutely unbelievable. The absolute neck of this guy. So we've just taken the leap from from the ancient royal house of David to the, <laughs> the Tua de Danon in Ireland uh, and this the Fergus Moore Irish, Irish figure to an ancestor of Queen Victoria, who thus fulfilled the prophecy that, quote, the line of David shall rule forever and ever. And that's an Old Testament uh, quote there. The Irish branch of the Danites brought with them Jacob's Stone, which has always been used as the coronation stone of the kings of Scotland and England and is now preserved in Westminster Abbey. Somewhat inconsistently, the prophecy that the Canaanites should trouble Israel is applied to the Irish. Right, so we've got this connection here that, oh, you know, the Israelis shall be troubled by a people, to, uh, you know, a bothersome people to the south. Well, hey, that's a bit like Ireland, isn't it? Great stuff, folks. Great stuff. So, um, oh, I like this bit too. So it continues. The land of Arzareth, to which the Israelites were transplanted. So I presume that's an Old Testament bit saying the, the people of Israel w- would be sent to a place that they call Ar- Arzareth. This is identified with Ireland by dividing the former name into two parts, the former of which is Erez, for land, and the later Ar, or Ire. Which kind of only goes to show you that you can kind of twist etymology to fit whatever your, whatever your ideas might be sometimes. Alright, so at the back of this book, The History of the Ten Lost Tribes by David Barron, he includes a letter um, and it's called Are We the Ten Tribes? And this is also like anti-British uh, Israeli literature. And this this article, Are We the Ten Tribes, is written by a fellow called the late Horatius Bonar, reprinted by permission from The Sunday at Home, October 1880. So this is obviously a, an, an article, a letter that appeared in a magazine, a Victorian magazine, that David Barron liked and stuck at the end of his book. And and he he yeah he goes on a rant about why 
all of this stuff is biblically ridiculous. But the bit I liked is when he, he gives a list of sort of counterbalances and counterbalances, what he calls it. And I'm going to read some of these supposed proofs. They're, they're good fun. So number one, these are the, the things that the British Israelis use to kind of justify their worldview. He says, quote, Isles and islands are spoken of by the prophets. Well, these must be the British Isles, and therefore their inhabitants are the Ten Tribes. Okay, yeah, yeah, absolutely no other interpretation could possibly be made of that. Number two, I love this one. Quote, Israel loveth to oppress, the prophet says. Quote, England loveth to oppress, therefore England is Israel. Well, I mean, you know, way to go owning your imperialism there, I, I, I guess, is probably the nicest thing I could say. But yeah, hey, you know, they used to rule the world in their day and we rule the world in our day. So clearly we're supposed to be liter a literal incarnation of, of Israel. Uh, number four is, quote, Israel is to occupy the ends of the earth. Britain does so, therefore Britain is Israel. And my personal favourite is number seven. The people in the south of Ireland trouble us, just as the Canaanites troubled Israel. Therefore, we are Israel, for the south of Ireland is peopled by the descendants of the Canaanites. Yeah, I'm not going to get stuck in the quagmire of sort of what the Victorians believed about the Celts and different races and sort of what historians think now. It's it's horrendously complicated, but the, the whole British-Israelite thing is not one monolithic organization it's many different groups and some of them i'm sure were happy to include the celts in their conception of the british israelites and some of them probably didn't this is one that seems to suggest that the the celtic gaelic irish were not really israelites they're the canaanites and they're against the israelites and and, and such so yeah it, there's more than one way of looking at all this stuff i suppose but yeah it's 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 incredible how literally tied up all of this is with imperialism and it's incredibly blatant and it's incredibly it's incredibly racist and militaristic in a way which even when i read this stuff from this period quite often it's it's i find it seldom as as blunt as this ideas about the <clears throat> the 10 tribes of israel as well i mean Probably its worst incarnation, or one of its worst incarnations, is the mythology from the early 19th century in North America that, you know, there's no way the native peoples could possibly have built the mounds that were found in certain parts of the country and, and other structures. Therefore, some other group of people must have lived here and people have claimed all different sorts of origins for that architecture. But a common one was that it might have been the, the one of the wandering lost tribes of Israel, and there's another connection to be made here between the British Empire in the in the 19th century and, and the, you know, in, informal American Empire that we have now, which I will get to, but all things in time. I need to talk about a fellow by the name of Edward Weller Bird. Sometimes Edward Wheeler Bird, but I, I believe it's Weller is the, is the correct one. So he was an Anglo-Indian judge and basically was a bit of a big wheel in the British-Israelite movement. Um, after reading literature by one of the sort of architects of the movement, a fellow by the name of John Wilson. So Byrd helps found the Anglo-Israel Association and merges with another similar one in 1878 and he becomes president of the Metropolitan Anglo-Israel Association. 
This is sometimes called the London Anglo-Israel Association, and these are the guys who eventually decide that Tara in Ireland, in County Meath, is the place to go searching for the Ark of the Covenant. So he, this fellow Edward Wheeler Bird, was one of the main architects of this doing. So from about the turn of the century, of the 21st century that is, this story started getting attention again. Maureen Carew, um, who as we'll find out um, is involved in, in er, archaeology herself, did a lot of interviews around this time because her book was coming out in 2003. So in an Irish Times article she says... The conclusion that the resting place of the Ark was at Tara was based on their own mythology about the subject, which was an unusual mixture of early Irish history, genealogy, pseudo-etymology, and Old Testament rhetoric, which was discussed at length in their association's journal, The Covenant People, explains Carew, who is working with the Discovery Programme, a research organisation which is funded by the Heritage Council. At this stage, Tara would have been regarded as a British royal site, she adds. In June 1899, Walton Adams, British Israelite, archaeologist and Freemason, and Charles Groom, British Israelite and Freemason, arrived at Tara to commence explorations. They had received permission from the landowner, Mr. Briscoe, a fellow Freemason. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, being a very significant symbol in Freemasonry. We will talk about what Tara is, just so folks know. So, if you've heard of Newgrange, it's sort of in 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 that in that part of the country, and it's um, it's a little bit similar in terms of being a Neolithic site. So it's a complex of ancient ceremonial and burial sites. There are Neolithic passage tombs, which are these sort of uh, covered tombs with passages that go through them. What's kind of important about it in the history of Irish identity is that, it, yes, it's mentioned in the, the medieval book of invasions, which is a sort of a partly historical and partly mythological retelling of the history of Ireland through a medieval Christian lens, but incorporating lots and lots of pre-existing pagan iconography and characters sort of retooling them but yeah it, it's it's sort of a, a book we think i mean i mean it's many things but you could argue one thing one purpose it has is it's written to provide the irish with their own story in history to give them a sort of a mythic um origin story so you know in their own way not that different to what the british israelites were doing if that isn't a a terrible thing to say so Tara is incredibly important in the history of the Irish imagination. According to the Book of Invasions, it was the seat of the High Kings for all of Ireland. Um, my understanding is that the com contemporary archaeology doesn't quite uh, pass, doesn't quite bear that out. But anyway, we're, they, we're, we're dealing with ideas and concepts rather than than concrete reality with this stuff. It was also said to have been the capital of the the Tua de Danann at one point in mythological history as well. Unfortunately, the British Israelists show up at about this time and they believe it to be a sort of a, what they call a resuscitated Jerusalem and a spiritual capital of the British Empire. Now they're coming up against something that is a big deal in Ireland at this time that we sometimes call the Celtic Revival or the Gaelic Revival. So this is something that has happened, you know, many times over the, over the centuries, but there's a very strong 
kind of instance of it at, at this time from about the mid 19th century up until the 1920s and 30s and this is a movement in which you know, I mean, a similar movements happen in other countries too, in, in Scotland and Wales. But this is a period when all the European nations are trying to reinvent themselves and they're looking into their own history and folklore and trying to decide who they are. And in Ireland particularly, there's this attempt to define Irishness in this new way and make make them something other and something separate from Englishness, to, to be blunt. So they're looking at history, mythology, folklore. There are amazing movements uh, in art, literature and music at this time. The, the, the What's sometimes called the Celtic twilight in, in literature is happening. Lots of very interesting and very talented people are taking, are, are taking inspiration from this big cultural movement at this time. On the one hand, it is undeniably linked with political movements as well, both both sort of parliamentary political attempts for Irish separation, independence, and other more physical or violence ones as well. There's no questioning that some of those were linked in, in various complex ways. But it's also entirely true that this period has left us with a lot of the ideas that we still have about what it might mean to be Irish and a lot of the historical, cultural, and artistic um, elements that we're still very proud of and that we still... You, you will see sort of lionized and cherished in in museums, in in our, uh, conferences, in, in literature today. So it's an incredibly interesting, important time. And a place like the Hill of Tara has an extra importance, an extra emotional heft to it at this time out of all time. So to have this organization come over from London to basically dig it up um, and do what they will with it you know, explicitly for reasons of defining Britishness uh, is really setting them up in... Op you've got these two very proud and very nationalistic movements butting up against each other. An incredibly interesting time. So why this obsession with Israel and the Israelites? I must admit, that isn't intuitive for someone like me with my sort of smattering of 90s Irish Catholicism of the very wishy-washy kind. Perhaps if you're listening from other places, that connection is obvious, but th there was certainly nothing in my religious background that really made this obvious or intuitive for me. So I'll just quickly mention that I suppose you could imagine that it's a tiny bit... The, the, some of these British uh, people were a bit like the American evangelicals today, where they have this... They feel this deep connection to Israel. They... As leaders of the world, I guess, at the time, they probably wanted to see themselves as either literal or figurative descendants of the Israelites, especially with the way the Israelites are described so favorably in the Bible. Incidentally, of course, today with American evangelicals, you have this sort of obsession with Israel because it plays into their sort of end of days fantasies that they seem to want to happen, which is great. And un unfortunately, though the the British Israelists were a pretty fairly anti-Semitic in terms of they didn't believe that the people living in, you know, the the people we now consider to be Jewish people that they really weren't, uh, they were some sort of uh, false Jews or some sort of you know even even demonic or evil or cursed race. Uh, it, it gets worse because this way of thinking uh, fed directly into what's now known as the Christian identity movement in the US, which is 
even worse and, and a whole lot darker and we don't need to to go too far down that road instead we're going to focus on the bogus archaeology because it's kind of more fun so one of the reasons why they think there's a connection between the um the ark of the covenant and tara in county meath is that the word tara sounds a bit like the word torah and yep that's the level we're at here i did find a good site called voices from the dawn um written by a fellow by the name of howard goldbaum and he talks about how uh, Princess Tia Tefi, who we've talked about already, that she was the daughter, supposed to be uh, in myth, the daughter of a pharaoh who escaped from the Holy Land with the Ark, and that she was buried at the hill with it. And uh, this was according to the sort of twisted logic of the British Israelists, and uh, also based on this 11th century poem, originally written by Kuan O'Lacon and translated by George Petrie. It goes, Brigatia was a meritorier abode. It is heard that it was once a high abode. Where lies the grave under which is the great Mergech, the burial place which was not violated, the daughter of Pharaoh of many champions, Tifi, the most beautiful that traversed the plain. I'll also mention here that Maurid Kieru also notes that some of the other pieces of evidence they point to include the possibility that the the Arda Chalice, the, the famous um, piece of Celtic uh, metalwork that is well known here, has, quote, pure Hebrew characters engraved upon it. And according to some of their writers, it was not St. Patrick, but rather the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant, which caused the banishment of snakes from the island. Now, I will mention this uh, Princess Tefi does actually appear in the Book of Invasions, but, I mean, so do lots of other stuff that is not regarded as being you know factually historically real it seems likely that she is just a bit of medieval myth making in the book of invasions she's mentioned as being a princess of a group of people called the milesians uh, and it also says that they originated in egypt uh, and, and i think what's happening here is that the the british israelites are linking this to the book of jeremiah which says that Jeremiah and possibly his family escape to Egypt. So I think they're sort of forcing these two things together to fit their purpose and their narrative. So their archaeologists, if you want to call them, uh, headed over to Tara and started to get stuck in. They weren't really interested in much besides the Ark itself, so they were pulling other interesting things out of the ground and not really keeping a whole lot of records about them. They weren't making notes. Most of what we know about their desecration and i think that's the correct word comes from a local landowner by the name of john dylan who was interested and was taking notes as to uh, what kind of things they were pulling out of the ground briscoe who you might remember was the freemason landowner supposedly sat by uh, having been bought off and um, was drinking whiskey uh, on the sidelines while all of this sort of cultural destruction was going on an, an irish archaeologist by the name of ras McAllister wrote in a later book from, I think, 1931, he said, The concept of Tara as the centre of a spiritual, religious, or cultural conquest of the world is a recurring theme in British-Israelite literature. As Tara was regarded by them as an ancient royal site in the British Empire, the deposition of the Ark there would be evidence that Tara was indeed the spiritual birthplace of the Anglo-Saxon nation. So, a little bit later, after this has been going on for a while, and sort of disgust is starting to build amongst the Irish population. 
1900, there was a visit to the site on Christmas Day by two very famous figures. We're getting into very important people now in the history of Irish nationalism, the history of Irish uh, political separation from Britain, and they are Arthur Griffith and Maud Gonne. Yeah, hugely important figures. If, if you went to school here, you know, you'll know you know all about these guys, but I'll give a very brief potted history of them. And, and Irish history at this point is very, very complicated. I'll do my best. Arthur Griffith, one of the, the founders of, of Sinn Féin, um, he writes a newspaper called The United Irishman. He was probably not involved in the 1916 Rising, but he was arrested anyway, just because he had a lot of connections to people who were involved. He was put in charge of the group who were sent over to London to negotiate what became the, the treaty in 1921. And now the history of the Irish president is a complicated one because there are different names for the same thing and there are different things that appear to be the same thing and, and it was called different things at different times. But he was a president of what was called Dáil Éireann at the time, which was the form of government operating while Ireland was a, you could argue, a, re a revolutionary republic. It depends on who you ask, to be honest. But basically he was... He was in charge, and, and, and some people called it a presidential post. It was sometimes described as more like a prime minister, but he was that for about eight months in 1922. So a very important guy in the history of Irish independence. Maud Gonn was a, a, my, one of my favourite subtopics. She was an Anglo-Irish patriot. The history of Irish independence is full of Anglo-Irish people who uh, did a tremendous amount of work, both culturally and politically, to sort of advance the cause uh, very often because they were the folks who had the education uh, the time the the influence um, and the ability to to maybe get stuff done so she was wholeheartedly in favor of home rule separation from from britain and worked very hard for that for many years she was also a suffragette so you know fighting for women's rights she was actually born in surrey which is a lovely part of the world i lived there for several years and i'm fond of it uh, to my joy, she was briefly involved with the Order of the Golden Dawn, which is, of course, an early sort of turn-of-the-century London-based occult group where she became involved with W.B. Yeats, another very famous Anglo-Irish um, Irish patriot and uh, a guy who I think deserves his own episode on this show just because he was deeply... This isn't always remembered, but he was deeply, deeply involved in the history of weird things supposedly he pushed alistair crowley down the stairs of i think the london branch of the golden dawn i, I could be getting my details a bit mixed up there but he he you know everybody who was involved in those sort of london secret societies generally didn't have good things to say about alistair crowley so i wouldn't be surprised if that was true editing key in here i absolutely can't resist throwing in a quick quote here this is from a biographer of yates Richard Elman writing in 1948 about this encounter and he writes in Highlander's tartan with a black crusader's cross on his breast Crowley arrived at the Golden Dawn Temple in London making the sign of the pentacle inverted and shouting menaces at the adepts Crowley climbed the stairs but Yates and two other white magicians came resolutely forward to meet him ready to protect the holy place at any cost when Crowley came within range the forces of good struck out with their feet and kicked him downstairs. Anyway, Maud Gone famously, Yates was obsessed with her and uh, tried to marry her several times. And she turned him down, partly because she felt he wasn't he, he wasn't extreme enough in his uh, in his 
his nationalism. She also, don't know if this is a good thing or not, but she kind of said, well, your love for me is causing you to write amazing poetry and it's good for the country and for self-image that you continue to do so. So, yeah, broke his heart. He then promptly, well, years later, he proposed to her daughter, which is, is also great. She ran a group called Indian Heron, which is, is Daughters of Ireland, um, and, and with this group led a, I think, 30,000 or something children's march against um, basically a, a Boer War recruitment drive that was happening in Dublin. And she was just a, an all-round collector and promoter of Irish culture. Uh, this group, Indian Heron, later became Common Naman to... to cut a long story short which is like the confederation of women or the council of women and they were they were very active in the as far as i remember in in the 1916 rising and then in the civil war as well and um, maud gone was on the anti-treaty side in the civil war uh, but seemed to have spent a lot of time trying to get different sides in the conflict to stop killing civilians or at least minimize she was uh, actually arrested for sedition at this time. So both of these people, Arthur Griffith and Maud Gonn, are huge, huge, huge characters in the history of Irish independence. And they both weighed in on this Hill of Tara issue. So the desecration that they saw when they were there and their drive to get involved in this was, was only a small part of like what turned out to be a four-year struggle to stop this desecration. Uh, Griffith was actually forced off the site on the day by guys with rifles, um, whether they were the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, or whether they were members of the supposedly archaeological group. I'm, I'm not actually sure, but he quickly was writing about this in his newspaper, and he wrote about Tara. He said, A living reminder of the former glory of an enslaved and half-debased nation. He then got very angry and started to... Uh, throwing around a lot of nasty descriptions for the various um, August learned societies who had allowed this desecration to take place. He described the Royal Irish Academy, the Office of Public Works, and the Royal Society of Antiquaries in Ireland as Huns, Barbarians, and Anglo-Saxon foreigners. Maud Gahn was so struck on the day uh, at seeing this that she fell to her knees and uh, had a vision of a ghostly profession of well, what sound to me like sort of, you know, old school druid-like figures in white robes winding around the mounds and the tombs. So they were both extremely moved by this. Maud Gon eventually published articles about this in a magazine in Paris called Le Claire. So the whole thing went a bit international. And uh, Yates and Hyde, who later became a president as well, Douglas Hyde, were both uh, printed. They had a scathing letter in the London Times. So this was a rather an enormous um, media sensation at the time, and they managed to get a lot of attention for the issue. Perhaps the, the climax of the issue comes in 1902, when Maud Gon again leads a children's excursion um, up to the mound to... I guess, put pressure on the archaeologists and the authorities. Now, Briscoe, the landowner, had prepared a big bonfire for the new for the new king's coronation, and Maud Gon and her group instead uh, lit it themselves and kind of performed a little ceremony in honour of Irish independence and uh, sang the song A Nation once again which I can only imagine must have been a very stirring moment. The local constabulary, she noted, didn't like it. So I presume that's the RIC, the Royal Irish Constabulary, who were the police force at the time. And they, they would have been largely plucked from the ranks of the Irish public. So they would have been Irish people who would have been 
um, enforcing the, the British order at the time. So yeah, always a complicated situation. So they had success. By August of 1902, uh, the archaeologists were ordered by the authorities to stop doing this. And by all accounts, uh, this happened because of the media campaign. So they were they were afraid of the possible consequences. Now, this was 1902. You know, still a de relatively delicate time. Um, I can imagine the authorities fearing that the public would see this as something... I mean, it was seen as a, an emotional hot-button issue. It was an identity issue. And uh, yeah, they, they have feared that their, the consequences might have been perhaps more physical should had this been allowed to go on for uh, for a bit longer. But that's not the end of the story because nothing strange ever truly dies. As late as 2018, um, some remnant group of, you know, what originally was British Israelism uh, came to the Hill of Tara and they delightfully they brought with them a fake... Ark of the Covenant, clearly modelled after the one from the Indiana Jones film. So here we have fact and fiction interacting, intertwining, and feeding into one another, as we so often see. Now, while the conflict at Tara clearly represents, uh, you know, one theatre of colonialism versus what was then an emergent nationalism, it wasn't only the British who uh, got to take part in this kind of madness. Because in 1897, on Molesworth Street in Dublin, a British-Israel Association of Ireland was founded as well. I would be remit to say that the British archaeologists weren't the only people to do silly things um, on our sites. Because, of course, we have had, you know, I think it's fair to say some bad decisions over the years done by the Irish government also. And um, in, I think, 1998, I'm having trouble nailing this one down because it's from a very strange website. A gentleman or lady known only as J.A.H. Uh, gave a lecture in Maynooth University, which heavily focused on the Hill of Tara and the Ark of the Covenant. So this character uh, has the entire a written version of his lecture. And I'm just going to read this little bit. He or she says, So why would God bring the Ark of the Covenant to Inishfall, the island of destiny, Ireland, of all places? You might sensibly ask. Why is it called the island of destiny? What destiny? It's all in the prophecies. And the short answer is, for safety, and to keep it from the Babylonians, from the Medo-Persians, Alexander the Great, the Romans, and more recently, the British monarchy and Christianity. The longer answer is to fulfil his prophecies which rule your destiny and also for its future role in bringing peace and unity to Ireland when I recover it and for Ireland's final destiny. Let us hope for your sakes that you don't. Fail, that is. Cool, thanks J.A.H. Um, interesting here just to note that uh, like at this point, the, the, the meme of the, the Ark of the Covenant being at Tara has even gone past uh, you know this sort of british centric worldview it's even gone past christianity this is no longer a british thing or a christian thing it, it's gone off into some sort of new age uh, direction which yeah you i mean all of, of, often does happen i suppose and to wrap up i'll return once again to Mairead Keru, who uh, wrote the book i took most of this information from so back in 1998 she was doing an interview and she said 
I think it's incredible the media who were so tuned in 100 years ago to the destruction of a national monument that they launched a campaign to stop it are now giving credence to people like Mr. Hill who believe if the Ark of the Covenant is still upon the earth and not already inside the New Jerusalem, which is a ship the size of a city, that it is going to come down out of the sky and then it will be buried with Tifi at Tara. So happy to give Maraid Carew uh, the final word there. So nothing new under the sun, folks. All strange things out there have a history and my job is to go in search of it and find out what's really going on as best I can. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Hopefully I've done some justice to the subject or to whet your appetite. Uh, all ideas, corrections, bits and pieces, um, any sort of commentary, I'm always pleased to have, as long as it's, you know, pleasant, polite. I can take I can take corrections. Uh, get in touch with us on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. And on Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast, where if you have any weird stories yourself, send them in to us. As we say, we are happy to believe them, but the evidence has to be good. So as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.